This is the Business of College Sports podcast with your host, the founder of businessofcollegesports.com, Christy Dosh. Find her on Twitter and Instagram at sportsbizmiss. Welcome to the Business of College Sports podcast. I'm your host, Christy Dosh, the Sports Biz Miss, and I am going to tap into my legal knowledge today and what little knowledge I have of the NCAA's new independent accountability resolution process, the IARP. Watch out because there's a lot of acronyms today. <laughs> but I am bringing on somebody who is an expert on this, Brian Kappel, a partner at Lightfoot Franklin and White in Birmingham, Alabama. Brian has spent a lot of his career as a lawyer diving into NCAA compliance issues. He is a former collegiate baseball player uh, at Princeton, a former minor leaf relief pitcher, and now he gets involved in NCAA investigations on behalf of institutions, coaches, administrators, and student athletes. And this new process began last year and didn't get a lot of coverage, obviously, because of what was going on with the pandemic and all of the other issues facing college athletic departments. But for those of you who work in and around college athletics, I do think it's important to understand what this new process is, how a case gets into the system, what happens to it once it's there, what the resolutions look like. And so I am talking to Brian today about all of that. He's going to break it down for us in an easy way for us all to digest and understand. I know that I understand the process a lot better now. So looking forward to sharing my interview with Brian Kappel. Without further ado, here is our chat on the independent accountability resolution process. Hi, Brian. Thanks so much for joining the Business College Sports podcast. We're happy to have you. Glad to be on here. So I, I admitted to you before we hit record, and I'll admit to the whole audience that I know very little about what we're about to talk about. So I am going to be learning right along with the audience. So that'll probably be helpful because I'm not going to assume that anyone knows anything. <laughs> so you are our expert on this independent accountability resolution process. Can you just give us a, a really like big picture overview of what exactly that is and how long it's been around? So the independent uh, accountability resolution process, which we call the IARP, um, has been around since uh, basically late 2019, early 2020. Um, it comes out of the Rice Commission report, uh, which uh, most folks will remember mm -hmm. uh, was a result of the um, FBI investigation into men's basketball um, in college athletics. Um, the as, as part of the Rice Commission, the uh, folks at college athletics were, were polled about what they liked and didn't like with respect to the um, infractions process, the rules infractions process that the NCAA has traditionally used over the years. One of the things they identified um, was, a, was a feeling that uh, schools were not um, being dealt with with a sufficient due process um, and, and that they thought that there was some problem with the way that the infractions process was working with respect to having too much power in the NCAA. Mm -hmm. um, and so what they uh, requested and what the Rice Commission kind of put out there as a possibility was a more independent process where um, for select cases that, that required um, some additional protections for institutions or involved individuals, uh, you would have an independent investigator um, and an independent body uh, who would decide the case and decide the penalties. Um, and so the Rice Commission proposed a, a similar body to this, a, a, a more independent process. 
Um, and the NCAA took that into account and came up with this IARP as the way to implement that recommendation. Okay. So how does a case get referred to the IARP? Is that a decision the NCAA makes? Can an institution ask for that? How does that piece work? There are actually three parties that, that can send a case to the IARP. Um, the institution can request it. The vice president of enforcement, who's John Duncan, uh, can also uh, refer a case. Um, and then the uh, chair of the committee on infractions can also refer uh, a case to the IARP. Now, the way that works is, is it goes to what's called the um, infractions referral committee. There's a, uh, actually a body who takes a look at a referral request and decides whether a case is appropriate for the IARP. And there, there are a number of different standards as to why a case could be referred or might be referred into this process. Um, you know, they're, they're a relatively um, a diverse set of, of factors that would go into play. Um, and they range from things like it's a, an important issue for the membership. Uh, you know, at the, the, the issue or the, the rules at issue um, is important to the membership and uh, the folks there think that it's, it's gonna be a, a case that really kind of sets a standard. Mm -hmm. um, it ranges from that to something along the lines of uh, there's been some antagonism between the enforcement staff and an institution or an involved individual, mm -hmm. um, some thought that the institution and the involved individual is not cooperating appropriately. Um, so they developed this off-ramp into the IARP to, uh, to put a more independent uh, person investigating the case and deciding the case uh, with the hope that that's, that's going to help um, drive uh, kind of better cooperation and, and, and a more complete process. Okay. And then tell me a little bit about who makes up the IARP. So if a case gets referred to the IARP and it gets moved into the IARP for resolution, who hears the case? Are we talking one person? Are we talking a panel? What does that part of it look like? Um, so the, the, the process really is an entirely different infractions investigation and decision process. Um, so it, once a case gets referred to the infraction, the, sorry, the independent referral, sorry, the infractions referral committee, <laughs> I get my, uh, in, uh, my acronyms mixed up here, yes. <laughs> the IRC. Uh, once a case gets referred to the IRC um, and they decide that it's appropriate for the IARP, um, then uh, you two things really happen. One, you have um, an independent team that gets assigned to investigate the case or look at the case again. Um, that's called the complex case unit or the CCU. That's made up of an independent investigator um, and a designated advocate, an advocate uh, for basically uh, who, who will present the case on behalf of the CCU to the uh, what's called the in <laughs> independent resolution panel or the IRP. I'm starting uh, to see a lot of people involved yeah. here. <laughs> so the CCU, uh, which has an independent investigator, an independent advocate, and also a member of the enforcement staff, um, will take a look at the case and they will determine whether any portion of it needs to be reinvestigated um, or if any additional work needs to be done uh, to determine whether rules were violated. Um, and then they go about doing that work. At the same time that the CCU is going about their work, the IRP or the Independent Resolution Panel uh, is selected. There's a, a long list of, of folks who are on, uh, who, are, who are eligible for the IRP, but they select usually, um, I think six individuals, five are on the panel and one's an alternate. Um, and these five individuals are made up of lawyers, um, arbitrators, 
um, folks with uh, experience in the college sports world, but mm-hmm. who, are, who are not technically active in, in college athletics at this point. Um, and they sit as a, a kind of a five body, uh, five body uh, decision panel um, and we'll hear the evidence and, and make a decision. What kinds of cases have gone to the IARP at this point? So there are only six cases in the, in the okay. process currently. Um, the first was Memphis, which I think was referred in March of 2020. Um, the case involves James Weissman, um, who's with the uh, Golden State Warriors currently. Um, that received a lot of press and publicity. Uh, following that, a number of these men's basketball cases were referred into the process. Mm-hmm. Um, North Carolina State was referred, uh, Kansas um, LSU, which involves, I think, both a basketball and a football uh, problem, uh, was also referred. Then you have Arizona, and the most recent one was Louisville. Um, and so all of these schools have been referred uh, either by the enforcement staff or the institution to the, into the process. Okay, so there, there's a theme, the, the types of cases that are, that are making it there at this point. And then tell us a little bit about which part of the process you're involved with. Uh, so our law firm represents institutions, involved individuals, that'll be coaches, administrators, um, throughout the infractions process. Um, so that means we'll um, help investigate a case. Uh, we'll be present during uh, any interviews uh, that, that take place. That's how the, either the complex case unit or the enforcement staff determines what happens. Uh, they interview uh, folks uh, either you know, who are alleged to have committed violations or might have knowledge of rules violations. Um, and we help gather documents and, and, and conduct that portion of the investigation, the review uh, and the production uh, of those documents. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess more importantly for the institutions that are going to the IARP, we're also advocates. Um, and what happens in front of the independent resolution panels that institutions and involved individuals have an opportunity to respond verbally to uh, the allegations that are uh, made against them um, and also in writing. And so we prepare um, written product that explains what we believe happened um, and whether a rules infraction is substantiated by the evidence or not. Um, and then we present those arguments to the IRP or the Committee on Infractions if it's in the traditional infractions process um, and, and advocate on behalf of our clients uh, for the result that we think is correct. And so um, in many instances, it's, it's on behalf of an institution that says, yes, we believe these rules were violated. Here's what we believe the penalty should be. Um, some cases it's saying we don't believe that that rules were violated. We don't believe the evidence substantiates the violations that are alleged. Okay, so I was a transactional attorney. <laughs> I uh, was never a litigator. I tried to stay out of the courtroom as much as possible. Uh, I got deposed in a case a couple of years ago, and that was actually my first real experience with litigation. And I was not being deposed as an attorney. I, I was uh, being deposed as a potential witness. And uh, so my litigation knowledge is low, but probably a lot of folks listening to this are in the same boat. Can you tell us some of the similarities and differences between this process versus the types of things we hear about um, in a true litigation setting? Like, you know, a lot of times we hear that the issue with NCAA um, you know, investigations is there's no subpoena power. Um, and as you were talking about interviews, I was thinking interviews like depositions or, you know, um, and when you say you're drafting things, does that look like, you know, motions look, can you tell us a little bit about the similarities and differences? Certainly. So, um, I'll start with the traditional infractions process and, um, you know, obviously the, the folks that work in, in NCAA compliance for the most part 
our firm and some other firms, um, lawyers have litigation backgrounds. And so they're, um, you're right to equate interviews with depositions. They are um, sit down events where you ask questions and try to get information from uh, the interviewee uh, who would be like a witness in a litigation case. Uh, what firms like ours bring to the table is the ability to ask the questions in a way to elicit responses that we can later use in written material. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you want to get information, but you also want to get it in the best light possible or the best way possible, the best little sound bite that you can use when you turn around and make a written presentation and then an oral presentation to say the committee on infractions. Um, in the traditional infractions process, what happens is the enforcement staff puts out what's called the notice of allegations or an NOA, mm-hmm. um, which lays out the allegations that are made against an institution or an involved individual. Um, and you're given an opportunity to respond. And your response is an overview of the evidence um, and whether you agree or disagree with the allegations written. Um, and that's really what you're limited to in that situation. Um, you can also take, uh, make a response to say they're, they're uh, what's called aggravating and mitigating factors. Uh, whether you believe the school has done the right thing in response to the allegations. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then you also can talk about things the school's also done, like uh, self-imposed penalties or uh, uh, demonstrated what's called exemplary cooperation, um, things that might uh, mitigate penalties down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, in the IARP, there, there's a little bit more of a litigation feel to it. Um, and that's where uh, firms like ours really come into play you have the ability to kind of look at an investigation um, and go to an independent body of folks who are used to litigators or mediators mm-hmm. um, talking to them in a way that, that is more like the courtroom um, and you know, take up issues with the investigation. Uh, you can actually make motions in the IARP uh, process. Um, and there's even provisions in that where you can present a witness at the, uh, in front of the independent resolution panel. Um, you know, again, a lot of these cases haven't really been decided yet. So how that process is going to work out is not entirely clear, mm-hmm. um, but all of that is baked into the IARP. And so, um, yes, it's very similar to, to litigation. Um, and, and so that litigation training really comes into play more with the IARP than with the old committee on infractions process. And it sounds like there could potentially be several attorneys involved, but I'm imagining the NCAA we know has their own legal counsel. I'm assuming institutions, you know, in certain cases would want to have their own. A coach then might want to have their own representation. You might even have student athletes involved who want to have representation. Um, Is that what these are looking like so far is that you've got a lot of different uh, interests being represented? Yes. So in a traditional infractions case, the institution can have legal counsel. Coaches can have legal counsel. It's, it's not required and, and some forego that option. The, um, the NCAA is represented by the enforcement staff, okay. uh, which is a, a, an independent uh, internal body that is charged with uh, investigating potential rules infractions um, and then presents their findings from the NCAA's perspective to the Committee on Infractions. Um, in the IARP, however, you're, you're right that there's an initial layer of, of lawyer involved. Um, the complex case unit, uh, the independent investigator in the complex case unit is usually a lawyer um, or another firm that has investigative background, sometimes lawyers, sometimes not. Um, but they're also assigned an independent advocate who is, in fact, a lawyer um, and is trained to present these arguments. And so um, in the IARP, the way we've seen things going 
far more attorneys are involved um, and more attorneys with litigation histories. Okay. And will there be any sort of appeal process or if the IARP takes on a case, is the decision final at the end of the day? Sure. If an IAR, if a case goes into the IARP um, and a decision is made by the uh, independent panel, um, that decision is final. There's actually no um, appellate option from the, uh, for the independent resolution panel of the IARP. Um, that's a drastic difference from the traditional infractions process when you had a, um, an infractions appellate committee, the IAC, <laughs> uh, again, more acronyms, um, that could take on a case uh, after it had been decided by the committee on infractions and decide whether there's a, a problem with penalties or with a factual finding, whatever it may be. Um, so the IRP does not give you an appellate process and it's uh, even more significant because the penalties involved for any case that goes into the IARP um, are, are increased. They're increased over the traditional infractions process. So that's supposed to represent the, um, the fact that these cases are more important, that they're more contentious, uh, therefore the penalties um, are, are, are higher. What do you think the timeline is going to look like for these cases? I mean, I know it's a little weird because last year timelines for anything were different than they would normally be, but has there been any discussion about what a case would look like? You know, we obviously know that a lot of times with the NCAA or even just in normal civil litigation for anybody who's ever been involved in that, um, it can take a long time once you get lawyers involved and you have all these layers. So has there been any sort of guidance about how long they expect these to take? One of the supposed benefits of the IRP was that it was going to be quicker than the traditional infractions process by having these outside bodies, these outside investigators um, and advocates involved. Uh, they were supposed to be able to throw more resources at these cases and get them done uh, more efficiently, more quickly. Uh, unfortunately, and I think largely due to, to COVID, and I think the folks in the IRP would, would agree, that really hasn't been the experience so far. Um, a lot of these cases that entered the process, say, in early to mid-2020 are still going through the process. Um, now, the good news is the, the NCAA just announced a few days ago that they, it expects um, decisions in all six cases that are currently in, in the IRP uh, within the next 12 months. Um, and so with the pause for COVID, that seems like a, a, a pretty quick result compared to in the, in the traditional infractions process, what can be two or three years before you get a final result, depending on the length of the investigation. Right. Uh, so they can get it done in 12 months. That, that will be kind of um, uh, a, little, a little quicker than, than a traditional infractions process. But it's, I think it's still at this point has been, been less than as speedy as, as expected. When it gets to the panel stage and it's going before the panel, does that happen in person? If so, where does that happen? And does it look like a courtroom situation in terms of the way things are presented and considered? Um, so typically happens in person. Uh, I, I don't believe any of the cases have gone in front of a panel yet. So uh, in terms of how that how it's going to look and where it might happen, I don't believe they've made that decision. Um, I can tell you in the committee on infractions process, uh, typically those are um, you know, they're held in person, although some of them more lately have been held over Zoom or, right. or, or other uh, video processes. Um, you know, it, it doesn't look like a courtroom. Um, there's a uh, basically a four-sided conference room uh, with, you know, basically four levels of tables, uh, one kind of in each area. Uh, the Committee on Fractions um, is at the head of the room and the parties are, uh, the, the institution is down one side, the enforcement staff's down another side, and on the opposite side of that, 
from the Committee on Infractions is the um, involved individuals and in their counsel. Um, and in the traditional infractions process, you, um, you basically have a reading of the allegation and a response to the allegation um, by the enforcement staff and then by anyone who was affected by it. Um, and the Committee on Infractions then can ask questions to the parties about things they heard, um, if they're unclear as to the facts, that kind of thing. Um, the IRP gives you the option of, of presenting kind of more and additional information, um, you know, baked into the IARP policies and procedures is an option of, of bringing someone in live to speak. Um, you know, it's not going to be like a cross-examination situation, but it sounds like uh, they're more open to um, having someone there in person, uh, having um, presentations made that maybe go beyond a simple recitation of the facts, something that would be far more uh, akin to, say, an appellate argument in the litigation world mm -hmm. uh, or a motions argument in the litigation world than a simple recitation of facts and, and, and a position. So most of the folks who listen to this podcast who I think are going to be interested in this work at the institutional level. Um, what do you think they don't know yet about this process or need to know um, in order to make the right decisions, hire the right people to help them? Because this is such a new process and so few schools have been through it at this point. Sure. The, you know, at the institutional level, um, a lot of these issues are going to be very similar to what they would be in a traditional infractions process in terms of how they approach the problem from the beginning. Um, you know, we help schools out all the time who have little issues um, and we help them deal with those quickly and efficiently so they don't become bigger issues. And it's the same with an issue that has the potential to go into the IARP. Um, it was, it's billed as an off ramp for the more significant cases. Um, and that's why the penalties are higher. And that's why if you can avoid it, it's always better to do so. Um, and, and so that's, that's, that's kind of the first lesson is get in front of things and, and deal with them quickly. Because, you know, if, if the IRP is where your case is going, uh, then that means it's a, it's a major issue that, that needs to be dealt with. And of course, you'd like to avoid that if at all possible. Um, the, uh, the other thing I, I would likely say to folks who were working uh, in an institution is that, you know, this is again a new process. Um, we are still working out how it's going to look going, you know, going forward. Um, there are a lot of goals, uh, good goals that are baked into the IRP: independence, more due process for institutions and individuals. Um, and and you know, we, I think it just needs a little time to shake out in terms of you know, you know how these schools are going to approach it and how the how the decisions are going to be made. You mentioned that, you know, if something is going to the IARP, it, it's likely because it is a big issue that hasn't been handled. Is there ever an instance you can think of where an institution would want something to go to the IARP instead of going through the normal infractions process? Um, you know, I think when the IARP was first announced, uh, the lack of an appeal and, and the more significant penalties really... Um, really made it difficult for any institution to, to see that as a, a better option than the Committee on Infractions process. Um, I, I will say that I think that you know, we've seen a little bit of movement throughout the process with schools having um, some success arguing to the complex case unit or to the independent resolution panel that certain allegations should be reinvestigated and maybe relooked at uh, with a different lens. Um, and so there, there, there seems to be some 
expectation that, that maybe this process could be a little bit more open um, for institutions and involve individuals. And so there's some, some movement, I think, towards saying, uh, you know, giving that, an giving that a chance. I will say the more, um, the most recent case to go into the uh, IARP was Louisville, um, who announced that, that they did not believe that they could have a fair hearing in front of the Committee on Infractions. Um, you know, I think folks know Louisville's background. They've been in front of the Committee on Infractions uh, before. Um, and they, uh, they did not view uh, the most recent kind of allegations against them um, uh, favorably. They, they, were, they were a little bit upset about that, I believe, uh, based on their public statements. And so um, they suggested that the Committee on Infractions had already made decisions about what the outcome should be. And so they, they, it sounds as if they turned to the IRP as their only option to get an independent body to hear the evidence. Now, maybe this is a dumb or a weird question, but who is paying the people who are part of the IARP, the people that are in this CCU unit or on the panel, how are they being compensated? Um, my understanding is that that goes through the NCAA as well. And so all okay. of this is, is, is kind of traced back to the NCAA. Now we, we, we call this the independent accountability resolution <laughs> process. Right, which is why I asked. <laughs> yes, it, it, is, it is still important to note that um, it, it is ultimately backed by the NCAA. It is an NCAA process. Um, NCAA enforcement staff members are still involved in the complex case unit um, and are still involved in investigating. So although it is uh, heard by an independent body uh, of folks who aren't um, right then involved in college athletics um, and who will look more independent than say a committee on infractions made up of folks within who are, who are, you know, who are uh, right. in the industry. Um, you know, ultimately it is a NCAA process. Okay. Um, one of my last questions, I think it's my brain is still like whirling around trying to wrap my head around this process because uh, this is all very new to me and I, I don't report on or uh, get involved with infractions cases very often anyway, but I find this fascinating as a lawyer. Um, if there is civil litigation born out of any of this do you think there's anything different to sort of note or think about in terms of if you've been through the normal infractions process versus if you've been through this process? Because, you know, with this, you're saying there, there is no appeal, but I, I, th I would think in some cases there is that option for civil litigation. Yeah. And, and that, that issue has also come up. Um, so uh, I think NC State, North Carolina State, when they were referred um, raised this issue explicitly that, that um, it, it sounded as if that uh, from their statements, they had not um, really consented to being part of the IARP um, and wanted to preserve that opportunity to appeal. And when the mm -hmm. uh, referral committee uh, put them in the IARP, that they suggested that by basically taking part in this, they were not um, they were not waiving any right they would have to appeal, which I guess in the situation would mean civil litigation. Okay. Um, you know, overall, uh, there has been a lot of litigation over the infractions um, process uh, throughout history. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the, the one that comes to mind and the one that most uh, law students hear about is their Tarkanian case, right. um, where uh, Jerry Tarkanian basically uh, appealed to the civil courts uh, his, his suspension. And um, what the, the court said in that case and, and what I expect courts to say, even when the IRP is involved, is that this is, uh, the NCAA is a voluntary uh, organization, membership organization, 
um, and they have developed rules to, to deal with their, uh, their, their potential infractions uh, of their bylaws. And by being a member of the um, NCAA, uh, you have consented to those rules. Now, um, could there be a situation where uh, an institution uh, takes umbrage as to what the IARP uh, uh, creates for itself, the, what penalties the independent resolution panel puts out there. I'm certain there, there will be. Um, and and I, I don't view it as fundamentally different than what the Committee on Infractions decides in terms of how the penalties are going to be uh, seen in a civil court. So I have to get in an NIL question because I, I told you before we started recording, that is what I've spent most of my last year uh, researching and writing on and talking about. And so it's always top of mind for me. And a lot of infractions cases that we've seen over the years have uh, been with regards to uh, payments that have been made to student athletes or things provided for them, you know, cars, clothes, what have you. And so I get the question all the time when I do interviews, do I think NIL is going to change that, that now everything's going to be above board. And I personally have said um, that I think where the NIL issue, where the issue is going to be even under NIL is that they're still not supposed to take payments to induce them to go to a certain institution. And I still think that's going to happen. And I think it's going to be harder to discern or to prove that, you know, the local car dealership, and I'm so bad. I always pick on car dealerships. I got to find somebody else to pick on. Um, but the local car dealership, you know, signs a deal with a student athlete to come do an autograph signing or some sort of appearance, you know, at, at a car dealership or another local business. Um, and then we're going to get into timing. Did that happen before they committed to go to the school? You know, how do you think NIL is going to change the types of infractions we're going to see, or is it going to change it? Um, I mean, ultimately, I don't think it's going to change the types of infractions that, that we see go into the committee on infractions process or the IRP. Um, you know, the fight over NIL has really been about what standards are going to apply for uh, determining whether, say, um, a sponsorship is legitimate or if it's, a, it's what we call an inducement, um, which is a, a, an improper promise to, to get a student athlete to, um, to attend an institution. Um, and, you know, once those standards are established, uh, you know, the enforcement staff is going to be tasked with determining whether uh, these sponsorships uh, are above board or, you know, basically are in, you know, in bounds, that means within the standard or, or out of bounds. And just like um, they deal with currently situations where you have a family friend who might give a student athlete or prospective student athlete money. And, and the, the suggestion is that that was an inducement to go to a certain institution. Well, then you have to look at all these other factors as to, you know, what the relationship is like, um, how long they've known this person, et cetera. Um, and so I think you'll, you'll have the enforcement staff still looking at the exact similar factors and determining whether a NIL sponsorship is, is above board. Um, you know, it, it will affect, um, I think, a lot of the, um, uh, you know, improper benefits cases that go on uh, in the infractions process right now. Uh, right now, student athletes can't be provided anything based on their status as, as being a student athlete. Mm -hmm. um, and that actually sets them apart a little bit from regular student athletes or sorry, regular students and in institutions, uh, say a band member who can receive something for being in the band. Right. Um, 
NIL kind of opens that up to student athletes as well. Uh, they can receive endorsements um, or, or other kind of sponsorship money uh, based on their status as a student athlete. At least that's what most of the uh, state bills that are um, either uh, enacted or, or in process right now seems to suggest. Um, and so that actually might reduce the number of violations uh, for enrolled student athletes. And so, um, you know, it, it, it really depends on what the NIL structure is going to look like, um, how the enforcement staff and the NCAA body uh, in, in basically embodies those laws, um, and, and whether there's a standard out there that the enforcement staff can really apply uh, that will allow them to determine whether a, uh, a sponsorship or some other type of NIL agreement, um, you know, was intended for its, its, its stated purpose, which is to compensate the student athlete for using their name, image, or likeness. Yeah. How much more complicated does the analysis get when you've got a bunch of different state laws? I know uh, as of July 1st, uh, the day we were recording this, Georgia, uh, Georgia's governor signed, and you and I are both from Georgia. Yes. Uh, you live in Alabama and I live in Florida. So now we, we've got Georgia, Alabama, and Florida. They're all July 1st start dates. New Mexico and Mississippi are as well off the top of my head. And I know Arizona is the end of July. And then we've got a smattering of others. I think now we're at 13 total um, throughout the next two years. And the NCAA last week, President Emmert, um, after Florida tried to move their date and then moved it back. They got reassurances from Emmert that there aren't going to be any repercussions against student athletes in states that have enacted legislation. So now we're talking about the NCAA trying to govern with all these different state laws. Some say, you know, you can't have deals that compete with the athletic department. Um, some say, you know, have really specific language about using university intellectual property, um, you know, and obviously schools are going to have some of their own rules around that. It seems like it's going to get really difficult to govern really quickly. And I know the NCAA has been relying on hope that Congress will pass something that applies more uniformly. But quite frankly, I don't think that that's coming. Um, so I know institutions are scrambling to figure out what starts happening as of July 1st. Um, you know, I, I know you don't have any answers, but uh, <laughs> what are you thinking in terms of what this mess looks like in July? So the, I, I do think that the uh, compliance uh, office's job is going to get a lot more difficult come, come, come July because, um, you know, if, if these agreements are going to start going into effect, if student athletes are going to start taking advantage of the NIL uh, laws, um, then there needs to be a lot of work done on the front end to, to kind of vet, um, you know, kind of what's coming in the door. Uh, you know, there are, I think there's a lot of good that can come out of the NIL uh, for student athletes, um, but it does uh, create situations where, um, you know, there needs to be a, a little bit more level of oversight from the compliance folks in terms of who student athletes are doing business with. Um, I know there are a lot of, of products that are going on the market right now to help those folks do that work, which is, uh, which is going to be a, a welcome addition to the compliance world. Um, and, and, you know, frankly, there's got to be a lot more openness between um, student athletes and, and, and their compliance officers or athletics departments in general about what they're doing and why. Um, if it's now legal, uh, then, then hopefully uh, you can have uh, folks in the athletics departments, maybe not compliance folks, but, but other um, employees uh, who may be dedicated to helping student athletes navigate what's I think going to be um, a, a pretty kind of crazy 
uh, first couple months where folks are figuring this out. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Brian. If people want to get in touch, uh, maybe they know they've got something coming. What's the best way to find you and reach out to you? Uh, you can always go to our uh, firm's website. That's lightfootlaw.com, L-I-G-H-T-F-O-O-T-L-A-W, lightfootlaw.com. Um, and uh, you'll, you'll find my bio and the bio of several other lawyers here who um, are all part of the sports, uh, college, collegiate sports compliance practice uh, on that page. Yes, and I will link to the website down in the show notes for people if they want to get in touch. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I, I personally thank you because I knew nothing about this process until we started talking. And now I sort of have my head wrapped around it. So <laughs> thanks for joining us. No problem. Really enjoyed it myself. Thank you again to Brian for stopping by the Business of College Sports podcast and teaching us more about the IARP and all of the other acronyms related to this process. I hope that this unraveled a little bit of it for you and helped you to understand who gets into this new process, what happens once you're in the process, what the resolutions are going to look like coming out of it, uh, and, and all the other issues that Brian and I discussed. I know I have a better understanding of the process now, and I hope that you do too. If you have questions or want to reach out to Brian, you can go to the law firm's website at www.lightfootlaw.com. I'll also put that down in the show notes. If you've got an idea for an upcoming episode, I would love to know what you want to hear more about right now so I can get on the guests that get you the knowledge that you're looking for. Reach out to me by email, christy at christydosh.com or shoot me a direct message on Twitter at sportsbizmiss. Thank you for listening in once again this week. If you've got time to rate and review the show over on iTunes, I would be forever grateful for that. And I look forward to being back with you again next week.